This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. You might have heard Fox getting punked, which was hilarious. Um, they ended up with an interviewee that wasn't the person that they thought it was. This does happen from time to time. And I actually get the feeling it might have happened to me during the week when I recorded um, an interview with... We're going to play it, because he's full of fantastic information. I just wasn't sure if he was... Um, on the same page as what I was after. Uh, but who cares? We talk about a lot of stuff and we're talking about war. Where can, can you point to a military conflict in the world today, outside of Syria, um, like it or not, Assad, probably just mopping up. Um, there are small ones ongoing all the time. Yes, always the statutory apology. It's no fun in Gaza. From time to time, it's very bad. From time to time, it's no good in um, southern Cameroon. So from time to time, it's not that great in Kashmir. But a military conflict, an army against an army. Um, I can never recall a time in my lifetime where I couldn't point to one, and I don't think I can. And I thought that might just be worth talking about. I certainly hope it's a trend. We do talk about that. I try to talk about that, and we do. Uh, but the history of war expert is Tony Salinger, and he's a great chat, and he will be on later this hour. Susie Wiles is here with Skeptical Thoughts, so let's just rip into it. It's Bullshit. Hallelujah. All right. I was just speaking... During the news, I really should have been listening to it, shouldn't I? Uh, just telling Susie about the um, the grim movie that's on at the film festival, A Mother Takes Her Son to Be Shot, which is exactly what happens. Um, and it's in Northern Ireland. Here's one of the kids uh, from the movie. I dared sharpen the sharpener up my attic and fill top of it. I was just, I sat there, just sat there, like, what? <laughs> that is English. It's amazing, uh, isn't it? So sort of on, on a lighter note, uh, it, it, the movie has subtitles and <laughs> <laughs> that is English. There's more. If you want to kill them, use that age. My favourite weapons are like hatchet. Sweet. You already throw it at somebody, kill them point blank straight away. Hit them over the head just sent a good hair which split in half like a melon. Right. I got melon. Yeah. Oh, did you? <laughs> Hit them over the head with it. I'm not sure you call them. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And that's a little <laughs> kid about eight or nine, I think, anyway. Uh, all right. Skeptical thoughts. Hello, Susie. Hello, Graham. Uh, first up, most importantly today, I think people might have been uh, wondering about this, which hand politicians <laughs> use to wipe their arses. <laughs> Um, this you use your best hand, don't you? <laughs> so this was, I, I saw it in the spin-off, um, but it was a piece from a co the conversation. Um, and so it's a sting on the predatory journals. So these are scientific, well, scientific in inverted commas, journals that are, cl um, are touting for business from scientists or and academics, I guess, to publish their research. And they, uh, so they charge a fee to publish 
but they don't do any of the things that are supposed to be done, like peer review and various things. And so there's over the years been lots of um, stings where people will submit a paper that's clearly bogus. There's been the one about um, get me off your effing, uh, um, what's it, um, mailing list or something. And that was the entire, that was the title, that was the authors, that was everything in this paper. Um, anyway, this one was uh, from uh, Gary Lewis, who is a researcher at Royal Holloway uh, University in the UK. And um, his paper was basically to look at uh, which hand politicians wiped their bums with. And the theory being that politicians on the right would wipe their bum with their left hand <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> to sully their opposition. <laughs> Figuratively. So, so, uh, so essentially what, what Gary wrote was this paper where they had apparently surveyed um, eight politicians and asked them, <laughs> including Theresa Maybe <laughs> and Boris Jonsky. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Uh, and Gary uh, claimed that he was working at the Institute of Interdisciplinary Political and Fecal Science. <laughs> anyway, needless to say, the journal were like, absolutely, we'll publish your paper if you pay us $581. Um, but anyway, so it was just kind of a funny... Um, always, or, especially given something I'm going to talk about a little bit later, mm. always good to be mindful that not everything that looks like it's published in a journal mm. is actually good stuff. True. Oh, there's the classic. I brought it in. Uh, it's from a long time ago, but it does this exactly. Sort of sciencey word salad. <laughs> uh, you can see these on YouTube. They're very, very well done. Here's one. For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turboencabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fam. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal veins so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal lotus or delta type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremmy pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the Grammys. The turboencabulator has now reached a high level of development and it's being successfully used in the operation of nofertrunions. Moreover, whenever a fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal replenition. It's not cheap, but I'm sure the government will buy it. <laughs> Replenation. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how he does that with a straight, well, like, without just bursting into laughter. That, that is the thing. <laughs> it's flow. It's exquisite, yeah. isn't it? It really takes something to, um, to, to pull that off with a straight face. <laughs> it really does. It sounds so lovely. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Dear Velvet. Yes, Dear Velvet. 
Um, so this is a supplement I hadn't heard of before, um, but uh, this came across my um, my feed. Mm. Uh, and so 100 capsules will set you back $50. There is a company in New Zealand that harvests deer velvet from deer in the South Island. If you don't know what deer velvet is, it's basically their antlers. So the amazing weapons that stags grow to basically fight each other every breeding season um they take about three to four months to grow and they uh and then sort of they they so they're basically living tissue and then at some point they start to calcify to turn into these really hard things that then they can basically fight with right so so Deer velvet is basically taking the antlers from a deer before they have calcified. So this is not like waiting for them to fall off or anything. It's taking the actual living tissue. Um, and I was looking it up on, online. You uh, So in New Zealand, it, ca it has to be done under anesthesia and under the supervision of a vet. So this is a... And then I, and then a vet I know was just like, this is not a pleasant thing. So um, it's, a, it's not a nice... It's, not oh. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty invasive thing that requires... Um, anesthesia and stuff. Anyway, it's not but like people, the vegetables. No, exactly. Um, but people uh, are taking the stuff and then turning it into capsules, um, and they make all sorts of claims for now, what is it, the uh, stuff can do. They sure do. Yeah. They sure do. And I, I, I suspect it's, it's sim yes, I have. But it's just something that's like symbolic, isn't it? It's like the rhino horn yes. sort of thing. Deer velvet. These the antlers, stags. Blood growth. Vitality. <laughs> it's it's, it's got to be good for you, sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, we do have some of the claims. In fact, we have uh, an array of claims <laughs> being made by a particular man, and he goes on for some time. We'll just pull up stumps, uh, let him go underneath, and see how many claims he can, <laughs> he can uh, cram in. Can cram in while we talk about him. Antler Farms is the leading manufacturer of the world's best deer antler velvet. Deer antler velvet is a natural adaptogen, a substance that has a non-specific activity but helps where it is needed. He sounds like the last guy we had on, an adaptogen. He needs a sinusoidal recubulator. Deer antler velvet has a complex chemical composition which stimulates the body's own systems to protect, strengthen and restore functions that are out of balance. It supports the body's ability to adapt to and resist stress, disease, degeneration and toxins. Deer antler velvet has been used in traditional Chinese medicine for over 2,000 years. Bingo! And Bingo. continues to be a fundamental ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine today. Other countries in Asia, Europe, and America have used deer antler velvet as a treatment for a variety of medical conditions. There is an increasing amount of scientific evidence it, supporting it will, the will go on about deer this. antler yeah. velvet from decades of research carried out in Russia, Korea, China, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. Ooh. This research has given credibility to deer antler velvet's traditional usage and no, validated <laughs> recommendations. Okay, for you can just go on in the background with those yeah. um, claims. Um, so there has been a study in New Zealand. Uh, some some researchers at Massey um, published something in 2012 in the New Zealand Medical Journal on mm. the health benefits. Um, so they did a um, a survey of the literature to find the the trials, um, and they found seven. Uh, which made, you know, uh, basically saying um, that we're testing all the kind of claims. So mm. arthritis, osteoarthritis. We'll see where he's um, up to. 
In separate studies, human subjects using deer antler velvet were able to exercise longer. Oh, yeah, oh, exercise, good, good, good. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, sexual dysfunction is another one. We'll get, get onto that in a minute. Um, anyway, so they found seven um, trials, uh, human trials that had been done, um, five of which found no benefit and two of which did find a benefit, but basically their conclusions of those trials were that they were dodgy. Oh. So uh, the, the meta-analysis was basically there is no evidence for this. But I found a really... Um, so one of the, the big claims that is made uh, is around um, sexual... Uh, sexual um, it will basically help with sexual performance. Um, and I found a really recent paper, 2016, um, looking at this uh, in aged male mice. Oh. Yeah, so they took some mice and then they gave them... Um, I've never thought of mice aging. Yeah, well... We, and there you go, yes, you must get an old mouse. Um, so they they, uh, they aged these mice, I assume they let them get old, <laughs> uh, and then they had four groups. One that they didn't give any of the deer velvet to, uh, one that they gave 100 milligrams per kilogram mm. to, uh, um, I don't know how long they did it for, a few days maybe, then 200 milligrams and then 300 milligrams. Um, and then they just, then they... They basically got these poor mice, put them in a cage, gave them gave them a female mouse, and then uh, basically measured a whole bunch of things like did he mount her, how many times did he try to mount her, all these kinds of things. If he did mount her, did he ejaculate? All these various things. If he didn't, they put another one in, and if she did, if he didn't they mount her, they put another one in. Um, so they basically watched these uh, and then and then measured a whole bunch of things. And so I've got these graphs, these hilarious graphs uh, in front of me that have got things like mount latency and mount frequency, uh, ejaculation frequency, um, copulatory efficiency. Sounds I don't like quite know how you measure these things. Disney um, porn. But but basically, they all look the same. It looks to me, like by eye, I'm going to show you these things. They don't look like they're any different, but there's oh. some stars. They've done some I'm some looking tests. at a graph, two yeah. of them. And, uh, and histogram, basically, they're, no, they're bar charts, oh. actually. Really bad bar charts with very big error bars. Um, and then some stars going, these ones are different. And honestly, that, that looks like you've done 101 statistical test to find the one that work anyway so so this is this is now being used as yet more evidence in mice this time mm. that um that you should uh, take this for your sexual um sexual prowess um oh my goodness no mm. but um, the thing i'm really interested in so they there's one particular well there's lots of things in deer velvet which the dude was telling us about mm. um and he's still going by the way still fertility and other oh, sexual, conditions, sexual conditions such as impotence in men <laughs> And menstrual disorders no, in women. No, as a no. dietary supplement. Anyway, um, so what, one thing I found really interesting is they were looking at one particular um, uh, component in India velvet, and and so they were giving this 100, 200, or 300 milligrams per kilogram. And actually, the one they said worked was 200 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, but obviously the deer velvet tablets that you get have got a whole bunch of things in, in and they list them. There's like uh, growth factors, collagen, amino acids, lipids, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they come in 500 milligram tablets. So if, if, it, if, if the stuff from the mouse was true and they're taking 200 milligrams per kilogram, how many tablets would you have to take? as a human being, oh. to get that dose. Oh, I hadn't scaled up from yeah. Mouseland. Yeah, so if you're, if they're suggesting you take a tablet, that would be 500 milligrams. So that would be 500 milligrams for what? A 70 kilogram person? Uh. So, hmm, I reckon you'd have to be having a whole, like a whole Dear. pack of them a day. 50 bucks a go, I don't think so. <laughs> Just as a sideline, 
Wouldn't it be nice if we had antlers? That would be quite fun, wouldn't it? And we'd grow them each year. No, yeah. Okay. Well, then, then the poor deer, deer would be left alone. Yeah, I would have our own. Have a nibble on, on my velvet. That would be a thing we would do, I wonder. Yeah. Oh, but we should really have tails as well. I quite like the idea of that. <laughs> Is he still going? Waggle them, yeah. ...to improve athletic activity, oh, athletic to increase activity. physical function and performance. Gosh, no. Deer antler velvet is 100% natural. Oh. It is safe, well, that, non-toxic, and better than any other drug because it is a whole food that acts on the whole body. Oh, my goodness. Almost everyone, men, women, young and old, can benefit from taking deer antler velvet. Order now. Please, and stop, oh, okay. Graham, stop. <laughs> that's, um, that's him done. That's an oh, array of goodness. claims. That they was just quite it's it is playing bullshit bingo. You can uh, full card full house eh? within two full minutes. Full house. That's easy. <laughs> okay, we'll take a short break. We'll come back with more sexual dysfunction or function claims. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The weekend variety wireless. On Radio Live. A hell of a promo to live up to, but I do my best. Okay, now let's go on to uh, sexual dysfunction, a claim being made uh, after our dear velvet excursion, Susie. <laughs> yeah, do you have a clip for this video? It was I just, have. Um, it was just a really interesting video that came along. Let's listen to a little bit of it and then I'll talk a bit okay. about it. You say whenever you want. The creation and promotion of female sexual dysfunction as a mental disorder seems like a textbook case of disease-mongering by the pharmaceutical industry, harkening back to the first DSM, Psychiatry's Diagnosis Manual, which listed frigidity as a mental disorder, along, of course, with homosexuality. The latest manifestation is hypoactive sexual desire disorder, a disease invented by drug companies. It's like when Prozac was about to go off patent. The company sponsored the creation of a new mental illness to market a drug called Seraphim, which was simply Prozac repacked in a pink capsule. The condition previously known as shyness was branded as social anxiety disorder so they could get kids on Paxil. There are certainly women who are troubled by low libido, but there's no reliable scientific evidence that hypoactive sexual desire disorder is a real medical condition. And women can get diagnosed with it even with a normal libido. A woman highly interested in sex, just not for whatever reason with her current partner, can still qualify for the diagnosis and the drug. Even a woman who is perfectly satisfied with her sex life may still qualify if her partner isn't. Our story begins in 2009, when a drug company tried to get a failed antidepressant called uh, flibanserin uh, approved to treat hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Uh, the only problem? It didn't work. It was resubmitted again after more study and was still rejected, as was the appeal. But in 2015, the FDA approved the drug. What changed? Nothing about its efficacy. It didn't work any better. What changed is that the drug company that bought it helped launch an astroturf fake grassroots advocacy group, Even the Score, which lobbied for approval under a feminist rubric. Men have their drugs, why don't women get any sex drugs? Which was exposed as kind of a bitter irony. But 
hey, within 48 hours of FDA approval, the drug was sold for a cool billion in cash. Very satisfying for the drug company, but what about the women who take the drug, now sold as Adye? Not much. The drug just doesn't work at all. At all. Uh, yeah, so this is just a really cool video that I saw and by this guy, Michael Greger. Uh, he's a bit of a staunch vegan and does a bit of kind of, uh, you know, nobody should eat meat type thing. But this I thought was actually a really good video. Um, so, yeah, talking about the, these cases where, um, you know, a drug <laughs> has been, uh, or essentially a disorder has been kind of almost fabricated. Marketed. To, yeah, to sell a drug. And then this really interesting way of doing it where you basically create um, a demand almost using equality as a kind of, well, ladies, don't you want your drugs? Yeah. Um, and it's really all just a complete scam. Um, so I just thought it was really interesting. And then he goes on to talk about actually what were, what could be the things that uh, if you did have low libido, you know, you could be used to treat And were it. unhappy with that. The thing yeah. is you can be... Well, that that was the interesting thing about the the way you could be diagnosed with this is that if you had a perfectly healthy, you know, or ha or you were perfectly happy with your sex life, you just weren't having it with your partner. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> or, or the other one that um, that you're that you were perfectly satisfied, but your partner wasn't, you could still be diagnosed and treated. And it was just like, really? <laughs> Hilda Rogden anyway. from Coronation Street, Jean Alexander, asexual, just right. never ever had an interest in sex at all. That so would be there fine, you go. But, and, and she doesn't want the drug. But no. it was, yeah, it's this really interesting thing of something with no um, no efficacy uh, essentially being marketed yeah. and then and then sold for for loads of money. And what he basically says is, if you really, if this does bother you, eat apples. Right. And that, but now knowing knowing that he is very much into whole foods, that makes sense. But yeah. he also provides some of the evidence why apples are good. Yeah. Yeah, and if, if you want to try reasons. anything, that that might just <laughs> that might, might just, just do the trick. It has got <laughs> ingredients. Hey, thank you so much, Susie Wiles. Skeptical Boy, thoughts, uh, public service for another week. Next up, uh, we talk about war, the history of war. Can we point to a military conflict? Is this an unusual time in human history? Is it a trend? Could we continue? And uh, did my interviewee actually? Um, <laughs> I told him what I was wanted to talk about, and we keep going off on other directions, but they're really interesting. They're really good. And he's got a Queen's accent from New York, and it always makes people sound more authoritative. <laughs> That's just another form of racism. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. It was just last week, if you were listening, you might have heard it. I introduced the Sunday program by saying, hang on, I've had a thought. Yeah, that's dangerous. If Assad, like it or not... Well, in my opinion, the best of a very bad bunch, mops up in Syria, point to a military conflict on the planet. Where is one? Can you do it? Used to be easy. It's perennial, contiguous war, really. You never had a problem in doing it. Uh, is this a landmark moment? I suppose we do have to start with the uh, general apology that, yes, there is a lot of suffering and oppression in the world, and it's easy enough to point to that. But military conflict, where are they? Can you point to one? Anthony Spellinger from Auckland Universities. Classics in ancient history, so the history of war is what we'll be talking about, and the current situation as well. Tony? Yes. That's how you like to be called? Yes. 
with a Y. Chinese Ballinger <laughs> from Auckland University. Is it a valid thought? Is this a special moment if it stops? Have I, am I missing something? Well, if you go through the present news right now, and I just say the news because I'm not a member of any uh, uh, military council or government council, I would say that in the Middle East is always like this. I mean, I studied ancient Egypt. It's very difficult because the kingdoms come and go, the capitals come and go, the great leaders come and go, the wars come and go. And wars, I mean, wars after wars after wars. So I would say from what I used to study, at least 4,000 plus years ago in history, yeah. earlier, yes. But uh, when you really get into the nitty-gritty of the stuff, when you have the material to read, it's continual, and it is of one group of people versus another. If it stops in Syria, where are the military conflicts? Have I got a point? I think you, I think they are going to be subsequent, not just by the history of the Middle East. Has there been a time when we couldn't point to one, ever? In a lifetime like you're in my yeah. lifetime, say, a 50 or so years? No. No, in the last two, 5,000 years. We I would couldn't say, point to a military conflict between two nations. It would take time, but you would be able to easily point them every 30 or so years, every 50 or so years. Huh? It's not like having a peace of, say, from 1815 with Napoleon being kicked out in World War I in 1914. Say that's but there were things years. between then, Franco-Prussian War, lots of blood yes, army, armies going do. at it. I guess I'm thinking of bigger ones versus smaller ones. Oh. Your point's taken, though. You do have them all. You right. had them. My God, you had uh, wars in the middle of Europe on and off in the 19th century. And, of course, the famous Crimean War, yeah. which did nothing. You know, they just decided to fight in a stupid zone that no one really cares My challenge about. remains. Forget Syria for now. Okay. Let's assume Assad mops up and the guns yeah. cease. Where is another military conflict? I think it could be over the Golan Heights again. No, where is one now? Oh, where is one now? In the world or just in the In the, the world. East? Presently, I would say there's no overt conflict, uh, military conflict between nations or among nations. Yeah. I can see them arising very quickly. You do have the problems of Yemen, right? Yeah. Uh, which is safe for That's many That's a simmering civil war, isn't it? Yeah, and you, I think, could have an Iranian-American conflict, oh, though I don't really see it as God. going into bombs or anything. Where else? I actually think there's a possibility in Southeast Asia, but that's a long that's a long trend. It's not immediate now. Uh -huh. If you want me to elaborate. Is this special? Special meaning? Special meaning well, we are finding ourselves at a moment where we really can't see these armies fighting each other. We think we can. Is it remarkable? No, I think you, you you do have placid phases. I guess it's like having okay. an ulcer and then it goes away for a few months and then it comes back and you're not taking care of it or other occasions like that. Well, we wish this as a trend. Do you think it could be a trend? I could refer to Steven Pinker, the better yes. angels of our nature, that things could be a lot worse. Tonight, well, things have been a lot worse. Things are much yes. better. Yes, I would say so. I think if you want to follow Pinker, who follows Norbert Elias, I would say that things have been worse. There have been consistent wars on and off, big, small, continual. The big wars now are highly destructive, but they're more infrequent because you would really have expected the United States and the Soviet Union to have something major from 1945, something. Think about did. the Congo, five million dead. Yeah. That only just has pulled up stumps. 
There's a little bit of fighting here and there still, but as far as the major war goes, the Second Congo War, that's not long ago, and it was the biggest since World War II. Yeah, and it has a lot of casualties, as you know. Okay, uh, your thoughts on Pinker's point, the better angels of our nature, that we really are improving. Yeah, he again is following Elias. I think we are able to understand ourselves better so we don't immediately get locked into major conflicts. But I would say the improvement is is not as great as it could be and, in fact, is minor all the time. But then it's better to go up, I mean, to be improving, of course, than to go down. But you can reverse yourself. You can have the human race, I mean. You can have reversals, say, 1933. Yeah. In Germany, there's a reversal. They're highly civilized. They're one of the great civilized nations of the world, Germany. Yeah. And you can see that big deal. Yeah. What happens is you have a very strong, charismatic leader that thrives on the expansion of his people. And his people come first. And he doesn't come first. His people come first. So they have to conquer the whole European continent as far as he's concerned. So I think you can have reversals too. The fact is you have nice people that at least talk to one another. And you have a United Nations that can throw darts at one another verbally. doesn't mean that you can't have a reversal. And I think people are worried about that with regard to Trump but I don't know if it's rhetoric versus actual action. It's so hard to tell. It is. It's impossible, I think. And, if, you know, if you want to talk about um, hawkish leaders, I mean, it's well, George W. Bush, I mean... It was worse. On false far pretenses. Worse. Far worse. Yes. Uh, you don't go in another country. That's the disaster of, of course, the younger one. Yeah. You leave it alone. Under clear false pretenses, and they knew yeah. that they were lying. They lied, and they knew that they were lying. There's no need to have done that. Also, it provided instability that is still going on in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether you like Saddam Hussein is, is, is a different issue, but how in that it's a multicultural, it's a multi-ethnic group, yeah. how do you actually deal with it? You have to have a strong man. Yeah. Sorry, it isn't going to have a democracy. Yeah. Okay. Well, the continual apology. We understand there was a lot of suffering and oppression and violence in the world, but still, the army v. army... Point to one is the challenge. In having a look at the conflicts in the world today, uh, there's a handy Wikipedia list. I sent you this, didn't I? I think you and, did. And there, yeah. are, there are some that are current, but the current wars, if you like, end up way, way, way down on the list as far as casualties goes. There's something happening in Cameroon, but um, that's you know kind of like a civil conflict, and that's over language. In looking at the uh, list of wars through history, uh, it was a fall-off-your-seat moment when I had a look at the ancient wars. It's divided up into ancient and modern. I don't know what the cut-off point is, but in any case, the Three Kingdoms War in 184 to 280 AD. Heard of it, folks? I hadn't. Casualties? They don't really know, but they reckon about 40 million. Yeah, I looked over that, uh, the list. Not that I investigated it, frankly. I didn't go into the last last resources. I'm d I'd like, numbers are very difficult in the ancient world. It's a lot. It's a lot. And also, I'd like to know how the recording is there, and I'd like to know other things. Because you pick up a monument, the great king destroyed the city, and the 10,000, nice number, but let's make it 10,122, yeah. uh, uh, were put to the stake, you know, burnt. And then you find out that this is just, nice number 
editions. So I don't really know about that in the ancient world. I find the cost of the war, which I'm doing right now with respect to Egypt and the Near East or Middle East, I just decide to play and hypothesize based on costs of equipping soldiers and feeding them. It's very expensive. Of course, it's today. It's an incredible expense. Think of all of those nations in South America who traditionally have massive military expenditure. And what about the wars they don't have any and it all goes into the military so the military are running it in a sense and the ancient costs are very high too i was quite surprised unless you can live off the land which the egyptians did sort of make the locals do all of the work i mean mm. cost-wise economically ah the cost of running an army is incredible in the ancient world the sixty thousand, even that i sometimes come across i have questions over but i'm not negating some of those figures i'm saying i'd like further investigation. I find that too high. This, you know, the Three Kingdoms thing, too, right. too high. On the other hand, when you unify China, and I think you did have it down on your list later, around 280 to 220, yeah. just the end of the warring states before the first emperor, you know, even when he's he's emperor, he's liquidating people without wars, and he's also, of course, on his death, he's right, liquidating right. people. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, you could talk Mao. Yes. Look at what Mao did. They, yeah. It wouldn't be a war, wouldn't be called a war, but millions and millions, yeah. but that's that's a different thing. Yeah. That's so. uh, it wouldn't be a day went past when people weren't being killed at the end of a sword. That would be fair to say in the 30 years, well, someone is going to get it. Certainly someone is going to get it. The Germanic Wars with Rome, I find this astounding. The second highest casualties estimated. I've heard of Arminius, you know, the yeah, he's Herman the German. Herman the German. Herman the German. And uh, he managed to destroy some of Augustus's legions, which didn't amuse Augustus one little bit. But the estimate is about 15 and a half million dead. I find what? I don't know where that figure came from because the you're dealing with legions to begin with, not with populations. Uh. You're dealing with one or a series of great Roman military commanders who just screwed it up and they get liquidated and so does the army and some are dumped into captivity etc 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 but these are soldiers getting killed and even if you had 10,000 I find that number very high and I don't know how the Romans could have done it actually okay. you have to now think how many can you kill well, over it says that somebody's on their hind legs with a straight face telling me that number is the lowest estimate of all deaths recorded in conflicts between Roman and Germanic peoples we're talking 113 yeah. to 596. Ah, so they're going on the whole period of time. Yeah. Those are AD dates, so they're going uh, that in. Is. So that's that's, that's that is. That's German. after Herman that's, the German. Yeah, yeah, it's 100 years plus after. Due uh, to a lack of recording of deaths, the actual number caused <laughs> by these conflicts is likely much greater. That's nice, but I'd like to know the numbers, I have to say. Okay. I don't trust numbers in history, ancient history especially. Mm how they can be manipulated. Mistakes occur in the texts, you know. Yeah. You put a zero in a different place. You add a zero where it isn't there. Why not add a comma, you know, say 1,000 instead of 100 okay. and that. So I would say that's highly exaggerated. Okay. All right. Now, the figures that we, you know, the more ancient they are, the more difficult, well, I think the more skeptical you have skeptical. to be. But let's have a look at the modern wars. I was thinking, oh, top, that's going to be World War One and World War Two. Yes. Taiping Rebellion comes top. H hello, 1850 to 1864. It's a long time. 
And remember, it's partly induced by... There's a religious factor in there, too. It's not just a territorial north versus south in terms of a Chinese dichotomy, which is traditional. The Taiping is very high, yes. Those figures just astound me. 20 to... Okay, there's a lot of wiggle room here. There's wiggle room. But it's 20 million... They reckon about, at the lowest figure, 20 million, around about 50 million. Could be 100, no one knows. This is a massive yeah. conflict I haven't heard of, and it's bigger and, and more death toll than World War II. Yes, including civilians dying in World War II by bombs and nuclear bombs and the like. Mm. Yeah, the, you, you mainly get, it's the Eastern Front in World War II. The Why Western haven't Front. I heard of the Taiping Rebellion? I don't know. That's a good question. Most people, in terms of studying China, if they do study 19th century China, would have covered that. Maybe they ignore it. It's a good question to ask a Chinese historian. Why isn't this more publicized? Do they not want to talk about it? Or is it a sense of disunity and anything that's disunified Compared in China? Compared with how much bad? we hear about World War II, it's amazing. Mm. And World War II comes second. Yeah, well, for obvious reasons there. Yeah. And then there's a 1600 war, the King Conte, uh, Conquest of the Ming. Uh, that comes ahead yeah, that, of World War One. Right, that's the Manchu Conquest that forms what I used to call the Manchu Dynasty, the one around the 1640s after the Ming get overthrown. That's a lot of effort to kill about 25 million people. Yes. I can't comment on those numbers. The Spanish Conquest of the Aztec Empire comes ahead of World War One. Are they adding, because they often add the fact that diseases had spread before the uh, Cortes got to oh, right, yeah. the capital, so there's a disease problem. I don't believe that's very heavy. Okay. If you actually examine the number of the troops he had. Yeah. And wherever China's mentioned, the numbers are massive. Because the high population, which is only recent, by the way. The ancient population in China is not high. Good heavens. Which makes but you the, have World the Three War Kingdoms War yeah. seem even more extraordinary. Well, as I was thinking of earlier, you know, if you examine the American casualties in the Civil War, the American Civil War, they're very high. They're, uh, the North and the South, mm. they're up to 10% to 13% of the male population, male population, uh, which are the soldiers, of course. And if you ask anyone in the East, I suppose, when did World War II start? Nothing to do with Poland. It's the Japanese-Chinese War. Annexation of Manchuria in 31. Uh, right. But, uh, yes, they have the Chinese one. They take over. Yeah. That's Beijing or Peking or Peiping, as they called it then. And that is easily the biggest proportion of casualties from World War II. Interesting that they put that in again in the Chinese sphere. Yeah, because yeah, I would thought that the real sphere of deaths would be the German-Russian mm. from 40, end of 41 to 45. Apparently beats it. It's amazing. Is there anything in... The way we have societies today, communication, the internet, perhaps uh, the advent of just digital communication that is affecting the lack of war, that is maybe a hope that there will be less conflict in the future. Yeah, that of course is based on the premise of modern technology will alleviate, I mean not all of it of course, not modern bombs, but modern technology mm. provides at least a respite from it. I don't know, I think it's the people behind it always. I don't think Stalin could have done what Stalin did if there was an internet. Yeah, but I think if Mr. Putin is trying, you know, you don't know what's going on there, do you? And with Stalin, how much would be allowed out. We've got more of an idea than we did That's in true. 1949. Yeah, 
It's true. Much better idea. It would provide a break. That is, you know, break is in a car, but by the break on it, yeah, I would think so, perhaps. But it doesn't change the mentality of the people that much in terms of trying to socialize with other people who aren't of your group. Right. That takes, I think, a greater, you know, understanding and a different personality entirely of a leader or or an elite in a country. Okay. However, the point is worthwhile examining, but it's all projections to the future. You know, I don't know. I want to be hopeful. Well. And I'm just wishing doesn't make things so, but no, it but is a different world. An optimist, if an optimist works for it, is far better than a pessimist who does nothing, right? <laughs> you have to work for it, of course, but it's like everything. In order to bake a cake, you have to make a cake, you know, and you can say, I don't know how to bake a cake, so I won't mm. do it. Yeah, so there's no cake. It's another thing regarding wars and history. I'm astounded at how expensive wars are and why people continue with that sort of expense in blood and treasure, effort, time. The expense is gigantic. I didn't realize the Egyptian expense was so high, and this is dealing with 1500 BC. But the expense now, I'll give you a p peculiar example. I, did, I came across this many years ago, and it's by a military historian, and he was talking about World War II and the Americans in World War II, and when they get over into France and then they're moving eastward before they get to even Germany, they're losing a lot of petrol. It was siphoned off and sold. Imagine that. So the cost of pushing tanks, lorries or trucks would have had to have increased because they're losing by theft. That's never brought in. And that was a serious matter when you get to the Battle of the Bulge. So all of that adds up to an incredible cost. It's, a, it's an awful expense anytime, anywhere. Why did it persist so much then? Why weren't the people saying, is this really worth it? They would say that with all this new equipment, new technology, we can win the war. We can have battles that are short and sweet. We're going to use, say, computer things like in the Saddam Hussein war. You just shoot up nice missiles all aimed at it. It's heat sensitive, blah, 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 blah. And then you get it. But the cost of doing that isn't the cost of saying making an arrowhead and I would just, you know, bang against you mm. in the fields of Creasy or Poitiers or Agincourt. <laughs> it's, it's so different, the cost. But we have the monies that is the economy to do it. If we didn't, we couldn't do it. I always think, gosh, what else you might be able to do with that? That's right. What We'd else? Be on Mars by now, wouldn't we? Yes, <laughs> true. Because I'm one who uh, I know. I don't know if this is going to go on or not. Because I know you do editing, but I remember thinking, oh, after 1969, even before in the 1950s, oh, we'll be up there and up to Mars. No problem, Mars. We'll be the solar system by 2000. Yeah, yeah, said my scientist friends. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But the expense that has gone into something else, much less the technology we know now require, has delayed it. I wanted to have people on the moon and the space station. Supposed to be up there by about 1970 around mm. the Earth. Hey, yeah, sure. The expense, you couldn't do it. Yeah. And you know the cost. And problems of complexity that weren't yeah. realized. Yeah, but the argument against... I would say intense wars. You want to avoid the intense war, right? You want to start, if it's a plan to... None of them are fun. That's right. But what do you want to do? It's like poverty. Where do you start? Yeah. You have to start at things that you can approximate, try to resolve, and then go into the more deeper ones if you can. So I would say avoid the bigger ones at all costs. 
All right. And you can talk. In fact, they should talk on the radio, which I don't really do much. Oh, I'm doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think 1969, I often think of it as the pinnacle of civilization in certain ways. Yeah. Concord, hovercraft, ah, E-type jank, Beatles made Abbey Road, didn't That's make another cool. album after that, went to the moon. Not bad, eh, for There's... big stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nixon's presidency. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Oops. Yeah. All right. Uh, Anthony Spellinger, thanks very much for this conversation about war. Yeah, thank you very much, Graham. I'm glad to be here. Is there yeah. anything else you wanted to add that you, I don't want you to leave and go, damn, should have said that. I wish you'd asked me this. Oh, no, I think we've covered quite a lot. Pointed things, too, not just, you know, ordinary things that people would sort of think about and say, oh, yes. But I think that bringing up Pinker is important because he's become a a major person in the media as well as in writing and stuff in yeah. his own area and he impinges on lots of things not just warfare but philosophy human dynamics sociology mm. and the like anthropology and he's created a lot of opposition so he's in a sense a focal point for anyone who wants to talk about it whether you like his results and interpretations or whether you uh, there don't. are unarguable truths though with yes. Pinker, aren't there you have a look back in history and it's more miserable than it is today with patches of misery that happen today. But all in all, things are so much better. Poverty, Poverty is, is, is way better. down. And life expectancy is way better. Way up. Irrespective of medical reasons when you get old and all of these things, the answer is we don't die off basically at 40. No. Obesity is called a problem. Yeah. That's a sign of it, wealth in ancient is Egypt. It what? And I'm, what is obesity too? <laughs> we can have a discussion on that. How fat is fat? <laughs> you know, and if it creates a jolly person, I mean, adding three more pounds, not five hundred. Uh, if the person were not jolly, then I would argue an argument can be said that the person will die earlier because they're miserable. They've got a or lot of angry. food. They're angry. They've got a lot of food. Whether it's good food yeah. or bad food, they've got a lot of it, and that's the problem. That has yeah. never been a problem in human history. It's true. Yeah. Anthony Spellinger, thank you very much. Thank you. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Oh, I haven't mentioned this evening yet uh, that we have a fresh Outsiders with Gerard Heinmarsh, an amazing feat pulled off during World War II during Nazi-occupied Greece. It was uh, the sabotage of a, a, a vital bridge and it had an effect on the war. It was undertaken by a couple of New Zealanders. Uh, and just a reminder, the archives, f the Outsiders archives is absolutely complete and full and uh, just go visit visit the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and have a bit of a scroot around. There's lots of good stuff there, including said archive. <laughs>